Well, what a blessing it is to have uh, Chris with us after uh, many months of prayer and uh, searching. The Lord uh, provided us a, a new worship pastor, and so we're very, very grateful to God for that. And we've been praising the Lord tonight uh, for who He is and what He's done. And I thought it'd be appropriate if we just spend a, spend a few minutes in prayer before we go to our time in God's Word and. I thought it would be appropriate if we just thanked the Lord um, and praised Him for uh, His gracious provision uh, of a new uh, music minister, um, and also just that uh, we should pray that God would just grant them grace as they transition uh, into a new life and ministry here in Texas and here at Lakeside. So um, I was thinking, um, David, would I get you to pray and just thank the Lord for providing Chris and his family for us, and uh, that we would do a good job helping them assimilate here, and, and uh, God would give them uh, many years of fruitful ministry here at our church. Thanks. Father God, thank you so much for the blessings you give us. Um, you bless us in ways that we don't even understand. I'm just so overwhelmed that, that the notion that every breath we draw and every heartbeat that we have is not ours. You give it to us, and you give it to us graciously, and one day, I think when the veil is removed, we'll begin to see just how much of everything about everything and through everything you really are and how you hold this together in your hands. And uh, in your sovereignty and in the way that you order our lives, I just thank you for bringing Chris and Kirsten and their family to join us um, here at Lakeside. Um, Lord, I think that the, the blessings um, that they bring us are, are things that we don't yet understand, but Lord, may we... We're just so overwhelmed by the gifts and the talents, but, but not only that, but the heart of Chris and Kirsten as they come and they share their family with us and their lives with us, and, and I pray that we would share our lives and our families with them. Lord, mold us together as one, um, as a body here in this local place to, to, uh, to grow together, to, to form um, even more of a strong and a tight bond together um, with all, um, but to, to make your word uh, be fruitful to let your word go forth. Um, I pray for the ministry that Chris and Kirsten will have um, in music and in media, uh, in their family, uh, in the testimony of your word. Lord, would you just bring things about that multiply the gifts and talents that they bring to our body and that, that we have here so that the sum of the total is, is much, much greater than anything that any of us could do on our own. Um, and Lord, may all these efforts and, and goals, or the efforts and the, and the fruit that you bring, may they not be um, something that w we see as a, as a prideful thing or something that, that we would look to, to to say, look, we did that. Uh, but Lord, that, that your glory would go forth and, and it would show that through broken vessels and through cracked pots, uh, you can produce uh, the glory of the universe. Uh, Lord, we thank you for bringing their family here again, and uh, we pray for them as they settle in their home, um, and, and more importantly, as they, as they try to find a place that they feel like it can settle down and, and, uh, and the kids can call home, and it would be a, a long and a fruitful stay here uh, in Montgomery at Lakeside Bible Church. And uh, Lord, uh, we multiply the, uh, ask you to multiply the fruit of our efforts. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate that. And as the Lord brings the Deligulus to mind, pray for uh, their house to sell in California. They already got several offers, uh, which is a, a blessing. Um, they haven't even uh, settled in here yet, and they're already getting offers on their house there, which is a, a huge blessing. So just pray that uh, they would be able to get the maximum amount of equity out of that and be able to invest it here, and so we'll be praying for that. I also thought we should just pray tonight, um, ask the Lord's blessing on next week's kids camp, one of the biggest ministries we do all year, uh, not only ministering to the children in our, in our church, but also reaching out to the children and their families, their moms and dads in our community. And so uh, this is one of the best outreach events that we, we have. And so we need to be prayerful about that and, and just asking the Lord to be gracious in providing all that we need for that, all enough, enough workers and staff, and, and, uh, and then that God would be stirring the hearts of the children in our church and softening the hearts of uh, children and parents in our community as we look forward to that big family finale next Friday night where we get a chance to share the gospel in brief and hopefully make some good connections um, with uh, folks in our community. So Mike, can I get you to pray 
and just ask the Lord's blessing on, on our kids' camp next week. Thanks. Father, we uh, run to you now and just ask for your blessing on next week in the kids' camp. And Lord, we're thankful for the gospel. And uh, just as we've considered it in worshiping tonight, may it move us and compel us to now take it to our community. And Lord, uh, you know, this is one of the ways that we try to do that, Father. And so I pray for all the volunteers that will be working, Lord, that you would work in their hearts right now and soften them, Lord. Give them a, a, a glimpse, a, a bigger glimpse, a better glimpse of you and your glory and your majesty that they come with hearts to serve, hearts to share. Uh, Jesus Christ with those that uh, you bring, uh, Lord, with the kids, with the parents, uh, in church, out of church, Lord, but just that this would be a, a week uh, and that, that Jesus is, is magnified and exalted high and proclaimed loudly from the rooftops. And uh, Lord, we pray for um, you know, just the logistics and all the things that would happen, Lord, it would be done in excellence to give him glory. Uh, Lord, we pray for the hearts of the kids. Lord, it's, our, uh, it's a mission filled right here with our own families and our kids and the kids of the community. Lord, that you would, um, we know that you're the only one that can open eyes and soften hearts and give ears to hear. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that, uh, even at these young ages, uh, Lord, that they would hear a clear uh, gospel, uh, the story of Jesus Christ and the, what he's done and what he uh, is going to do. And Lord, that you would regenerate, you would uh, make new, and uh, Lord, that you would give new birth, and it would be the beginning of a long and fruitful life for your glory and for their good, and Lord, for the parents too, especially those that are um, coming from the community, Lord, may they see Christ and how we do that, how we uh, you know, just carry forward uh, his message through that camp. Uh, Lord, and I pray for the hearts of those that would come in that regard as well, and Lord, that uh, we know that you'll bring people who need to hear your truth. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, glorify your name through the salvation of souls. Um, so, Lord, we lift that up to you. Uh, we know that you're in complete control. Lord, help us just to be faithful stewards of your message and um, to love you and love the people that you bring. And uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. All right, well, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And uh, we are going to begin tonight by uh, looking at this uh, verse um, from which we derived our title, our theme for uh, this year's summer super study. It's called Salt of the Earth. And this is a very familiar verse, I'm sure, to most, if not all of you. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. About 35 years ago, a woman by the name of Becky Pippert wrote a book entitled, Out of the Salt Shaker, and into the world, evangelism as a way of life. Anybody ever heard of that book? Okay, some of the older folks, right? No, don't take that personally, okay? Because I remember it too. I'm, I'm putting myself in that category. But it was an interesting uh, title, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, Evangelism as a Way of Life. I've had a copy of that book in my library for years now, and while I've never read it, <laughs> I've always been convicted by the title. Somebody in uh, one of my seminary professors taught us that if anybody walks into our office as pastors and they look at our bookshelves and they go, wow, have you read all of these? And you just simply say, some of them twice. <laughs> it's true. I've read some of those books in my office twice, but haven't read all of them. And this is one of them. But uh, this has just been a concept that has always kind of been in the back of my mind. I thought, what a brilliant title, Out of the Salt Shaker and in, Into the World. Again, talking about evangelism as a way of life. Now, we all know what salt is. Salt is a, is a, is a, is a white granular food seasoning found in packets and shakers on virtually every dining table in the world. 
I don't care where I've traveled uh, in, in uh, opportunities that I've had to minister to other parts of the world, there's always salt and usually pepper along with it. Um, during meal times, everyone is familiar with using or hearing the common expression, please pass the salt. Uh, much of our enjoyment of a meal depends on whether or not what we're eating is too salty or not salty enough. And we've all been eating that Christmas ham or uh, Easter ham and go, wow, we're going to need something to drink after this is over, right? <laughs> and you just know you're going to be drinking water the rest of the day because it was so, so salty. Now, Jesus used this essential everyday substance that in his day was even more essential than it is in our day to illustrate the function, the purpose of his followers in this world. In short, our purpose as Christ followers is to influence and impact the world. I think that's the point of Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, that Christ's followers serve to influence and impact the world. Now, Jesus made this statement at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right after detailing the character of his followers. He just got done in verses 1 through 12, talking about what we know as the Beatitudes. In other words, the attitudes or the character qualities of his followers, of disciples of Christ. And so he, he makes this statement, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And he was just about to outline the standards for his followers. So he talks about the character of his followers in verses 1 through 12. And then in verses, really, um, uh, verse 17 all the way through chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7, he talks about the, 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 the standards of his followers. And so the point is this, the ultimate goal of modeling these attitudes, the blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who, who mourn, who are gentle, who are hunger, who hunger and thirst righteous, they're merciful, they're pure in heart, they're peacemakers. Uh, the, the goal, the ultimate goal of modeling these attitudes and living out the principles that he's about to outline here in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole goal of that was to impact those around us. Family members, neighbors, friends, bosses, co-workers, classmates, teachers, coaches, hairdresser, barber, house cleaner, if you have one, doctor, dentist, pharmacist, mechanic, your exterminator, your personal trainer, your garbage man, the waiter at a restaurant, the checker at Walmart. That is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, that we would be salt of the earth. Just to make it real simple, uh, it, it really just comes down to living your life in a way that is so radically different than everyone else in the world that people notice. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. It could be as simple as bowing your head at a restaurant and thanking God for the food. As a couple with your family. Like Monday, we, Kel and I went out to lunch, and like we always do, we ordered our food. It got there. We bowed our heads and prayed, thanked the Lord for the food. No big deal. We do it all the time, right? You do it all the time. No big deal. The waiter came back and said, you know what? It was really good seeing you guys pray. I don't see that enough. And uh, we engaged in a conversation and heard this guy's amazing testimony, how he went from being a, a cocaine addict to, to a born-again Christian. And uh, it was just really cool, just a simple bow your head and pray, somebody noticed, and it leads to a really cool conversation where you can hopefully encourage one another, uh, or in, in many cases, be a witness for Christ. Um, as we've been learning in the Gospel of John, if you come on Sunday mornings, uh, particularly in, in uh, the, the um, high priestly prayer, uh, Jesus did not ask the Father to take us out of this world, but to what? but to protect us from the evil one. Jesus never intended for us to isolate ourselves from the world, but to infiltrate the world with the truth of the gospel. That's kind of been a theme of what we've been talking about. In fact, uh, I've not had a chance to hear the whole message, but I heard Ralph did an outstanding job a couple Sundays ago talking about the, um, the uh, Tower of Babel and how 
that's an example of how we all do, oftentimes do what God tells us not to do. He didn't want us just to congregate and hang out and have a little holy huddle, right? He said, no, I want you to go out. And we as a church can do the same thing, uh, just to kind of have a holy huddle. Jesus didn't want us just to congregate, but to permeate the world around us. Uh, if God's goal for saving us was so we could fellowship with one another, well, then we would all have been better off in heaven. Because there's not going to be any sweeter fellowship that we'll ever experience than that in heaven. And, and yet he did not take us to heaven. The moment we get saved, he, he could have just, boom, you get born again, boom, you're in heaven. That didn't happen. I'm still here. You're still here. Why? Why are we still here? If, if, if the goal was so we could fellowship with one another, it would make sense he'd just take us to heaven. Well, the reason why he leaves us here on earth is so that we as a church, as the body of Christ, can influence others to come to Christ. We are his tool. We are his method of reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If all the Christians were gone, boom, who would be here to witness? Who would be here to be an influence, to make an impact with the gospel? That's what salt does. Salt influences and permeates everything it comes in contact with. Um, this passage, there's been so much written about it and all the different purposes for salt and what did Jesus have in mind primarily here. We, we know that salt seasons food and how we, we could live our lives in a way that uh, just, just brings zest and savor to the world around us. Uh, we know that salt preserves food, uh, especially in those days when there was no refrigerators, there was no freezers. Uh, the only way they had to preserve any kind of food, meat, for example, was to salt it. And so uh, it was very vital in those days. And so there are some that say, hey, listen, we exist uh, as Christians in this world uh, to curb the corruption of our society, to preserve righteousness in our communities and in our country and in our world. When we get involved and we speak up against things like abortion and same-sex marriage and all those kinds of things, that we hold back the tide of ungodliness. Uh, the, the idea is that we are salt, that we preserve um, righteousness. And we also know that very basically salt creates thirst. You, 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 you eat salt and, and it makes you thirsty. And, and our lives are to do the same thing. I think we're to create a thirst in others for Jesus Christ. And as unbelievers interact with us, they should sense something different about us that makes them curious to find out what is it that makes us different from everyone else in the world that they usually hang out with. I'll never forget Darlene Pizzi. Darlene Pizzi was in my class uh, in high school. We were seniors, and uh, we had our lockers right next to one another. And, uh, and, and I'll never forget one day, you know, you, you guys know how it is when you go to, you know, get out of class, and you, everybody's in the hallway, and it's just chaos, and you've got your locker, and you're trying to get your books out, put your books away from the, the class you were just in, and get your books out for the next class, and, and everybody's just shuffling, and they're slamming doors, everything's just crazy as you're getting ready to run down to your next class. So we were doing that, we are shuffling stuff around, and she's right here, and I'm right here, and, and she says, and she, she stops, like in the midst of this chaos, it was like one of those moments where time stopped. And she just stopped everything, and she looked at me, and she goes, why are you always so happy? I'll never forget that. I mean, it was like yesterday. Why are you always so happy? And I said, I said, Darlene, that's a great question. I said, let's go to class, and I'll tell you. And so we got our stuff, slammed our locker, walked down. We had the next class together, and we sat down in desks right next to each other. Like I said, I can see like it was yesterday. And I told her, I said, Darlene, the reason why I'm so happy is because I know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And I began to share the gospel with her in the few minutes that we had before the teacher called the class to order. And uh, that was a, a great beginning of a relationship with her of just sharing Christ and being Christ and living Christ and showing her Christ. And, and um, I don't know that she ever came to know Christ, but uh, it was a, a great example to me. I wasn't doing, I was just being a Christian, trying to live a, a holy life, a life filled with joy, and, and, and somebody noticed that there was something different about me. Why are you always so happy compared to everybody else who's kind of got a frown on their face, and they're always upset, and they're angry, and whatever? And uh, again, it was just an opportunity to fulfill the purpose that God has called us as Christians to be salt of the earth. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, 
we have one great purpose. One great purpose, and that is to be, what does it say, verse 13, you are the, what? Salt of the earth. And when we fail at this, when we aren't the salt of the earth, people will tread our testimony under their feet. It'll be, our lives will be useless, if you will. Um, and by the way, have you noticed that the world has contempt for undedicated, uncommitted, unholy Christians? Like, they just blow us off. I mean, if you, if you call yourself a Christian and you're a hypocrite, you, you, you are no different than anyone else. You, you do the same things, you talk the same, you go to the same, you watch the same movies, you listen to the same music, you, you just blend right in with the rest of the world. But, oh, you're a Christian. They, don't have, they won't give you the time of day. Why? Because there's nothing different about you. You're, you're not acting like salt. And my concern for us as a church is that we, I think, have to guard against what I would call the salt shaker syndrome. The salt shaker syndrome. Uh, the church is like a salt shaker, and Christians are like grains of salt. All of us are like a little grain of salt, and we're all in this shaker. And as long as we stay within the safety of the salt shaker, we fail to fulfill the purpose for why we are here on earth. Why are we still here? If we're born again, why aren't we in heaven? Why are we still here? Well, if we stay inside the salt shaker and just kind of hanging out, hey, this is it. We're in the, right, right now, guess what? We're in the salt shaker right now. We're hanging out in the salt shaker. How do you like it? Here we're all just grains of salt sitting in the salt shaker. It's real safe. It's fun. We enjoy it. Not much pressure, right? No one we'd rather be around than, than the group of people here. But guess what? If we stay in the salt shaker... We are useless. We're good for nothing. We're not fulfilling the purpose for why we exist. Salt doesn't exist to stay in the salt shaker. Salt, salt exists to get shaken onto that T-bone steak or those mashed potatoes or those french fries or whatever you like salt on, right? Um, that's the goal. And, and, if, and if salt, what does he say here? If salt loses its saltiness... It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In other words, our church is useless if we are not being the salt of the earth, if we're staying in the salt shaker. I, I hope it's not true of any of us, but uh, there's that expression, well, he's not worth his salt. You've heard that expression before? He's not worth his salt. Hope that could never be said of us, right? That we would, ah, oh, he's just worthless. Um, and so you think about the importance of salt getting out of wherever it is. If you don't sweat, if you don't perspire, uh, you, you don't release the water in your body, what happens? You get bloated, right? And, and so, listen, we don't want to be a bloated body you know, filled up with knowledge. You know, we have all this knowledge. We, we know the Bible, really. And we're, but we, we never sweat. We never excrete the salt. We never get the salt out of here, right? How about the Dead Sea? If you've been to Israel, uh, you've seen the Dead Sea. And uh, guess what? Everything's dead in it. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. Well, why do you think it's dead? Why is everything dead in here? Nothing can survive. No plant life, no fish life can survive in the Dead Sea. Why? It's too much salt. And you know why there's so much salt? Because there's no outlet. Everything just runs, Jordan River just runs down and stops in the Dead Sea, and there's no place for that salt to go. And so oftentimes churches can become dead seas where there's no outlet. We're just, truth is running into the minds and the hearts of people, but there's no outlet, and so it just becomes a dead church. God's goal for us as Christians is to come to church to be edified and equipped and then pour out of here to make an impact on the world around us. That's why I love this picture because what it's saying is, hey, you know what? We need to tip over that salt shaker and we need to get out of here. We need to take all that we're learning and all that we're uh, growing, how we're growing here, and we need to tip that thing over. We've got to get poured out. That's the idea. 
Again, we've said this a million times, but this, what we do right here with God's word and prayer and worship and, and fellowship together and hanging out as the body of Christ, this is all a means to an ultimate end, which is what? To be salt of the earth, to, to, to be a witness to the world, watching world around us. This is just a place where we get encouraged and we get edified and we get equipped to be witnesses to the world. Um, this is not the end. This is not, oh, great, I check it off. I went to another Bible study. I went to the super study. You know, uh, I'm going to go to church this Sunday. I'm going to go to Camp Revive. I'm going to go to do, I'm going to serve at kids camp. And it's all surrounding the four walls of this building. It's all happening within the four walls of this building. No, this is just a, a place to, it's a training center for us to do our job out there as a witness for Christ. And so during our summer super study series here, we're going to look at some familiar passages in God's Word that highlight our responsibility to impact others with the gospel. As those whom God has called to, to lead this church, we, we feel it's important to continue to, to pray and, and, and regularly and candidly evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of our church. And um, it's, it's fun to talk about the areas in our church that that God has blessed us with and that, we, we're, that we're doing well by the grace of God. Uh, it's not so fun to talk about those areas where maybe we're not doing such a good job. And I think the one area that we've all agreed on as leaders that we need to continually improve and excel still more is, is reaching out more to our community and making a greater impact in our community. That, that, that more of us um, would, would be reaching the lost. We would be being the salt of the earth, that more people would, would be coming to know Christ through the bold, faithful witness of those who attend Lakeside Bible Church. Um, our church has grown over the years primarily through what's called transfer growth, which, hey, that's part of God's sovereignty in moving people around and this area is growing and people are moving from different parts of the city or the country and they move here and they look for a new church and, and so we love that kind of uh, uh, opportunity to minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ who move in the area. But how much more would it be uh, exciting to see our church growing by conversion growth? In other words, unbelievers who've never gone to church or maybe who've been, been to church all their lives and thought they were saved but really aren't. Right, that through our saltiness in the community, that they would come to Christ. We know that from day one, the mission of this church has been the same, to glorify God by proclaiming and living the truth of his word so that people will come to know his son and grow to be like him. That's our mission. And uh, it's based on the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, even to the end of the age. And so this is the purpose of the church. This is the purpose of this church. Uh, this is what Christ has commanded us to do. Uh, this is what we're to be all about. Um, and that's why we need to be constantly and honestly assessing how well are we doing in fulfilling the Great Commission. That's something we should always be asking ourselves. Why? Because that's the goal of the church, is the Great Commission. And so how are we doing? Um, I think one of the reasons, if not the main reason, why entire churches and individual Christians often fail in fulfilling the Great Commission is because we don't share God's heart for the lost. We don't share God's heart for the lost. I mean, let's just be honest. We're not grieved for lost people like God is. The Great Commission really is based on great compassion, great compassion. And so I want us tonight just to return to a story in the Old Testament that, again, is familiar to all of us. Um, it's the story of Jonah. And, and I, I thought, uh, how, how can we best start this series? And uh, hopefully this won't be perceived as a, as a negative way to start, a, a downer way to start, but I thought, you know what, let's look at someone in the scriptures who failed to be the salt of the earth. Um, in other words, this is the guy we don't want to be like, okay, don't be this guy. Um, 
Where is Jonah, by the way? I'm trying to find it. Somebody stole it from my Bible. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There it is. I found it. And, and what, I'm at, what, I, what I've asked the Lord to do tonight is just stir us up by way of reminder here as we consider how Jonah and Israel failed to be the salt of the earth. And, and hopefully with this as our background, we, we just read, hey, listen, if, you, if, the, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. And, and in some ways, Jonah was a good-for-nothing prophet. Uh, if, if you know the story, um, it, it's really not about a man being swallowed by a big fish. I know that's how many of us were taught it growing up, us, Jonah and the whale, right? But really, it's about the depth of God's mercy and compassion for sinners, starting with Jonah and ending with the Ninevites. And the whole point of the book of Jonah is that Jonah failed to extend God's mercy and compassion to the Ninevites, even though he'd experienced God's mercy and compassion in his own life. And uh, you know that the Old Testament clearly reiterates God over and over again reminded the nation of Israel that he had designed them to be a missionary nation. They were to be his missionary. They were to be salt of the earth. They were to represent God in the world and reveal his love and his mercy and his compassion to all the peoples and show them how they could have a relationship with the one true and living God. But the nation of Israel failed to fulfill their mission as God's witness to the Gentile nations. And even despite their failure, God obviously overruled all that and he still accomplished his work of providing salvation to the Gentiles through their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I think what we need to understand, just as we dive back in here, no pun intended, dive back in with Jonah here, uh, Jonah is a picture of the nation of Israel. This isn't so much about Jonah as it is about Israel. Um, Jonah's autobiography is exactly basically what this is. These four chapters are his autobiography And they were intended by God to remind the Israelites of their missionary purpose and rebuke them for their callous indifference to the religious plight of the other nations. They'd been unworthy recipients of God's mercy time and time again, and yet they stubbornly refused to extend that same mercy to the Gentiles. And furthermore, God extended mercy to the Gentiles in in spite of their poor witness, and they resented him for it as we'll see in the prophet. And so this selfish hard-heartedness is exemplified in the life of all people, the prophet of God, the prophet of Israel, who who tragically reflected the, the heart of the entire nation. And so again, the bottom line of this book is that God was reminding Israel how they had experienced his undeserved mercy and and he was rebuking them for not being willing to extend his mercy to those who were as undeserving as they were. And, and really, this lack of compassion is really what it is. It's a lack of compassion for lost people. It really climaxes or is fully exposed or revealed in the final chapter of Jonah. And, and just, just quickly bringing you up to speed, I mean, if you were to break down the book of Jonah, you can break it up into four sections. Um, each chapter is its own division. Um, chapter one, you see Jonah's defiance where he, God told him to go to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction. Uh, chapter 2 is Jonah's repentance, where he got swallowed by the fish and prayed this prayer of repentance. And then uh, chapter 3 is Jonah's compliance, which means he finally agreed to go to Nineveh and preach the message of repentance. And then chapter 4, you could call Jonah's petulance, which is like a petulant little child. He was a bratty little kid where he protested in chapter 1, he prayed in chapter 2, he preached in chapter 3, and then he pouted in chapter 4. So let's look at, just briefly, this last chapter here, because I think you're all familiar enough with the story. This is how it concludes, chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, 
Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? What was he angry about? It starts off, this, this, this greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What greatly displeased Jonah? Well, guess what? He had preached to the nation of Nineveh, or I should say to the city of Nineveh, and everyone in the city repented from the king all the way down. And even the cows were walking around with sackcloth on them. That's how repentant the people were like, hey, everybody's going to be mourning, even the animals. I mean, this was, this was the uh, probably greatest revival recorded in the history of the world. That there was th- hundreds of thousands of people who were very ungodly, um, just ruthless people. They, these guys were notorious for their, their ruthlessness uh, and just the, the evil, the wicked things they did and their culture was so... Um, debauched, uh, and, and yet God granted them repentance. And so there was this, this full-on uh, repentance, verse 10, um, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Basically, Jonah's message was, hey, if you guys don't repent, God's going to destroy you. And uh, guess what? They repented. And so here he is, angry. I mean, what a bizarre response from, from the preacher that God used to stir the greatest revival, the, the spiritual awakening known to mankind. He got mad at God and wanted God to kill him. Can you imagine like leading someone to Christ? And, and they actually, you know, you're, you're sitting there on the airplane talking to them, or you're there at work at the lunch table and whatever, you're at the restaurant, or your neighbor's, you know, over there for, over your house for some coffee or whatever, and you're sharing the gospel, and they get saved, and you're like, you know, God, I'm so mad at you right now. I, I knew you would save them. That's why I didn't want to witness to them in the first place. And now I'd rather be dead than alive. So just, just kill me, God. Just kill me. Can you imagine responding that way? After God used you to, to lead someone to Christ? I mean, that's messed up. And, and here Jonah really revealed to God, he, he played his card. No mystery why he went the other way when he was originally called by God to go to Nineveh. Um, Jonah knew from his contemporaries, Amos and Hosea, that Assyria would be the tool that God would use to, to punish and destroy Israel. And so the last thing he wanted was to be used by God to see them delivered from his wrath because of their sin. And now even after having been delivered from God's wrath himself, I mean, he deserved to be eaten alive by that fish and never see the light of day again. But God was gracious. When he got thrown overboard, he was thinking, that's it, I'm done. But God mercifully provided that fish to come and swallow him, preserved him, spit him out on the shore, He had experienced God's mercy and wrath himself, or excuse me, deliverance from God's wrath himself, and now he's angry that God was gracious and merciful to the Ninevites. And, and Jonah essentially quoted Exodus 34, 6 here, when he says that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I think if you, if you underline things in your Bible, underline that sentence right there. That you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. That's the message. That's the point. That's the bottom line of the book of Jonah right there. God was gracious and compassionate to Jonah. He was slow to anger. He was abundant in loving kindness to Jonah. And he was also gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness to the Ninevites. That is the main description of God's character in the Old Testament. He is gracious and what? Compassionate. Compassionate. He has mercy on sinners. 
And so the Lord says, seriously, you really have a good reason to be angry? You wouldn't be here <laughs> if it weren't for my mercy and grace and kind, loving kindness to you. Notice verse 5, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see, until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head, to deliver him from the discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. This guy had a death wish, man. He keeps asking God to kill him. And so what's going on here? Well, the angels... In heaven, we're rejoicing over the Ninevites' repentance. Jonah goes outside the city and sulks. And, and he, he was like, I, I, I want to see, see what happens here. Maybe God will come down with his wrath after all. He was still hoping for that. I mean, this is the, you remember the story of the prodigal son, the older brother refused to enter the celebration when his younger brother returned. This is, this, is, uh, this is God acting like the father in the prodigal son coming out to appeal to Jonah. Say, Jonah, come on in and celebrate. And he was outside pouting. He's like, hey, God, just, you know, just kill me, all right? Death is better to me than life. At that point, if I was God, I'd be like, you know what? I think that's a great idea, Jonah. <laughs> you're more trouble to me than you're worth. I'll be happy to kill you. But again, notice, God never stops showing his mercy to Jonah. Is it not true that God never stops showing his mercy to you? Even when you're a knucklehead, right? We're knuckleheads, and God continues to pour his mercy on us. And what's up with this little worm? God appoints this worm. Everybody makes a big deal about Jonah and the whale. I think you should retell the story, Jonah and the worm. Because this worm is, is really just as miraculous, played, played just as significant of a role in God's sovereign plan for Jonah as the fish did. And so he sovereignly controls the, the wind, the, the plant, the, the, the storm, the fish, this worm... Um, all of which were sent by God to discipline Jonah and teach him a lesson. So he's all upset. God graciously provides this plant to grow up over and give him some shade in that Assyrian sun. Would have been a great relief. And then all of a sudden, this worm comes and destroys it. And uh, again, Jonah's all bent out of shape. In other words, he cared more about his, the, the plant than he did about the people of Nineveh. He got more upset about that. He got more joy from being shaded from the sun's heat than from the entire city being rescued from God's wrath. He was more interested in his own comfort than he was the souls of men and women. I mean, he was being totally selfish here thinking more about his temporal welfare than the eternal welfare of the Ninevites. Notice how this ends here in verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Again, he's just, he's just like this angry kid, just pouting, having a little temper tantrum. God's like, seriously, you're going to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion. Here, here's our point. You had, what? Compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. You had compassion for something you had nothing to do with. Should I not have compassion on, the, on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? One hundred twenty thousand babies, I think, is what that's a reference to. 
And if that's the case, then that would put the total population of the city somewhere upwards of 600,000, possibly a million people in the city. And so the point that God was making to Jonah is simple. You, you had absolutely nothing to do with this plant, and yet you had compassion on it. Shouldn't I have compassion for these lost people who I created and sustained all these years who will perish in hell apart from a relationship with me? Surely I have reason to care. Do you? You've experienced my grace and my mercy, so shouldn't you be willing to extend that same grace and mercy to others? And notice how this book is like, you're, you're like, okay, yeah, and? Like, it, it, where, where's, the, where's the rest of the, are you, that's it? That's the end? You ever been to a, to a movie, right? And, and you're, you're like, you're hanging on the edge of your seat and all of a sudden it ends and you're like, Seriously? Oh, that stunk. I can't believe they ended the movie right there. And then you sit there for another 10 minutes waiting for that little blurb at the end of the credits, you know, thinking they're going to give you at least a little something extra. Well, that's it. That's how this ends. It's, a, it's really a, a, a cliffhanger. We're, we're left hanging at the end. We're never told how Jonah responded to that question. We, we don't know. Uh, we don't know. What the, how the story ended. What, what happened to Jonah? I'm, I'm curious. I can't wait to get to heaven and find out. What, what happened to Jonah? How did how'd this thing end? And I think the reason Jonah ended his book like this, by the way, he was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because it forces us to do what God was leading him to do. And what God was leading him to do was to compare his heart to God's heart, to see if he shared his heart for the lost. That's what I think the Spirit of God would have us to do tonight is to compare our hearts. He's asking us the question, should I not have compassion for these people? And oh, by the way, shouldn't you? The real question is not how Jonah answered God's question, but how you and I will answer God's question. That's the real answer. Real, real issue. Again, I think this book was originally intended to, to rebuke the coldness and unwillingness and the laziness and lack of compassion that the Jews had because they refused to go and take the message of the true God to the lost nations. They were in their little salt shaker called the land of Palestine, the, 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 the Jewish nation. That was their salt shaker. And, and they sat selfishly and self-righteously in their own land, feeling hatred and disgust toward the pagan world around them instead of reaching out to them. And I think, obviously, you can see the connection to us, right, as the church in the 21st century. This is a rebuke to us. Why? Because we are God's witness nation, if you will. We, too, have been called by God to go, and yet we often lack God's compassion for the lost. We care more about our temporal well-being than we do about people's eternal well-being. We care more about our creature comforts than the souls of men and women dying and going to hell. There's people perishing all around us like the Ninevites. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves is how can we callously go to work and walk around our neighborhood and go to school and Go to Walmart and be indifferent to the unsaved people around us, especially as those who've experienced God's mercy and compassion in our own lives. Shouldn't we be willing and eager to extend that same mercy, that same compassion to others? And I know this is a hard pill for us to swallow tonight, but again, this may not be the best starting point, but it's the starting point I decided to, to go with tonight. But I think the challenge for us is that too many of us as Christians are like Jonah, that we have a proud, cynical attitude towards unbelievers. We're disgusted by them. We don't have compassion. I mean, let's just talk about Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, it's what every, the rest of the world's talking about right now. I mean, she's blowing up Google, and I mean, it's crazy. 
We were in South Africa and rooming with Rick Holland, and he said, oh, Ken, did you, did you see this? And I said, what? And he shows me the cover of Vanity Fair magazine with Caitlin's coming out party, you know, and I'm a woman. And Rick said, he said, man, how many levels of wrong is that? And I said, well, I think it's three. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Right? I mean, that's what it says in Romans 1, that God gave them over to immorality. Then God gave them over to homosexuality. And then the third step down is that God gave them over to what? Insanity. Where you look below your belt buckle and it's pretty obvious what you are and yet you think you're the exact opposite. That's insanity. And yet, we sit here and we're critical and judgmental. We, we know what the Bible says and we can confront that as sin and how messed up that is and how in the world and da-da-da and listen to what all these people are saying and um, cheering, them, cheering him on or her on. We, we're not sure what's going on there. But, um, and we can sit here and be critical, but how, how many of us, and I'm just asking the question, how many of us have used that as a springboard to share the gospel with people? It's on everybody's mind or everybody's talking about. Why not talk about that? Not in a judgment. You know? But say, hey, what do you think about that? Hey, what, you, do you know what the Bible says about that? And not come across as this, you know, critical, judgmental, right, Christian that everybody assumes that we are, but use it strategically for the gospel to build relationship and uh, maximize the weirdness of it all, to be salt. What does salt do? So well, you say, I'm not, I'm, not ta- I'm not talking about that with anybody. That's nasty. That's gross. I'm not even bringing it up. Well, what does salt do? Salt preserves righteousness in a, in a, in a, in a country, in a community. And so talk about it. Speak truth in love. And yet, rather than providing compassionate conversation to unbelievers, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, I just read somewhere in the news today that there's a big deal about, hey, let's just, let's just stop arguing about gay Christians, let's just accept them. I'm not saying you accept the sin. Um, I'm just saying let's, let's talk about it with compassion and speak the truth in love instead of just being a haven of hate where we just always talk bad about everybody and everything and make ourselves irrelevant to our community. I think one of the the most subtle traps that that a church can fall into is getting so self-absorbed that you totally lose sight of your purpose. And instead of being a rescue mission that's constantly looking for new and creative ways to aggressively reach out to lost people, we we just slowly develop into a self-righteous subculture that judges and condemns the lost. There's a section of a commentary on the book of Jonah that I found very convicting and challenging. And it's, um, the author here is comparing uh, the difference between being tribal and missional. Um, It'll make sense when I read it. He says, we can't escape a stark contrast in the story, the tribal mindset of Jonah versus the missional mindset of God. Mindsets involve fu- fundamentally different values. These two mindsets, excuse me, involve fundamentally different values. The highest value of a community with a tribal mindset is self-preservation. A tribal community exists solely for itself, and those within it, within it keep asking, how can we protect ourselves from those who are different from us? A tribal mindset is marked by an unbalanced patriotism. It typically elevates personal and cultural preferences to absolute principles. If everyone were more like us, this world would be a better place. That's the tribal mindset. In a missional-minded community, the highest value isn't self-preservation but self-sacrifice. A missional community exists not primarily for itself but for others. It's a community willing to be inconvenienced and discomforted, willing to expend itself for others on God's behalf. A tribal mindset is antithetical to the gospel. The gospel demands that we be missional because the gospel is the story of God sacrificing himself for his enemies. 
Both these approaches are robustly present in Jonah's story. Jonah represents the best of a tribal mindset, the absolute best. He's like the trophy boy for tribalism. (laughs) And God, ever gracious, ever pursuing, ever compassionate, carries the trophy for mission-mindedness. Jonah runs from his enemies. God runs towards his enemies. Jonah serves himself. God serves the world. Really challenging thoughts there. And again, I think it's just good for us to be honest with ourselves that are there tribal tendencies here at Lakeside Bible Church? Yeah. Um, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth saying again, and I don't think it's any mystery to anyone who's been a part of our church for any length of time. If you haven't noticed, we, tr- we attract a lot of Calvinists. Have you noticed that? We attract a lot of Calvinists. We attract a lot of homeschoolers. That's just who we are. This is uh, who the Lord's brought to this church. And what we have to be careful about is that we don't love the truth more than we love the lost. Sometimes I wonder about myself. Do I love the truth more than I love the lost? I'm not saying we shouldn't love the truth. We should love the truth. But we shouldn't be content to sit around and study and discuss theology and be more concerned about crossing every doctrinal T and dotting every doctrinal I rather than reaching lost people. Are you more concerned about correcting people's theology or winning their souls to Christ, right? We do have to have correct theology. I'm not saying throw out correct theology. We do have to have correct theology. But we need to keep our perspective here. I wonder sometimes if we love people like us more than we love lost people. Isn't that easy to get into that trap? We love love people like us more than we love lost people. We think, you know, we found a safe place to raise our family, and we're more concerned about isolating and protecting ourselves from the world than we are about reaching the world. You know what else we have here at this church? Is a pastor who used to be very passionate about lost people who's over the years lost that passion. In fact, has a hard time even engaging unbelievers because he's already ever, hardly ever around unbelievers because he spends the majority of his time and energy focusing on the body of Christ. And I have to go out of my way and be very deliberate, very intentional to engage with unbelievers because my world revolves around the church. And um, I'm convicted by that. Uh, you can ask my wife. There was a, a day when I was, when she, she, she first met me, I used to sign my le- my, all my letters to her, righteous and radical. <laughs> that was how I signed my letters, righteous and radical. And, um, and I'll tell you what, I mean, I was, I mean what, what would I do on Friday nights as a college kid? You know what I'd do? I'd go find out where, all, I'd go find out where the hangouts were, where all the kids were, you know, hanging out. And I'd go and I, I'd hand out tracts. I try to strike up conversations and share the gospel with people. I would carry tracks with me wherever I went. Anytime I would stop, you know, at the clerk and checking me out at the uh, at Walmart or whatever, I'd say, "Hey, I don't want to give you this." In fact, I was so I got sick of just handing out these tracks, you know, just generic tracks. I went home and I wrote my own track because I wanted to be able to say, "Hey, this is something I wrote," because they'd be like, "Whoa, something you wrote." Kind of maybe get them, get them a little another little hook there. And, and just over the years, guess what? I got busy and married and kids and doctorate programs and a busy ministry, a growing church, and you wake up one day and go, man, where did my passion for the lost go? And so please don't think I'm up here beating anybody else up here, okay? Um, this has really been challenging for me to think about. And if anything, this Salt of the Earth series is for me, in my heart, uh, to re-engage my heart in, in, in reaching lost people with the gospel. And the key to that, I think, is just building relationships. You need to build, build relationships. If you look at statistics 
about the majority of people that come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They didn't get saved at church. They didn't get saved at some big evangelistic rally. They didn't get saved at some concert. You know where they got saved? In somebody's living room, at a restaurant, in someone's you know, car, through the personal witness of a friend. That's how the majority of people come to know Christ. That's why we talk about lifestyle evangelism, or as Becky Pippert's book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, Evangelism as a Way of Life. It's just a way of life. You know, centuries after God sent Jonah to Nineveh, God sent another messenger to a sinful group of people, much like the Ninevites. However, the difference is this messenger came willingly and joyfully to earth because he shares, shared God's love for the lost. In fact, his heart was the heart of God. This messenger was God's own son, Jesus Christ. And listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt what? Compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, there's way more trees that need to get picked. They have ripe fruit on them. They need to be picked, but we don't have enough workers. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Pray to God to send out workers into his harvest. And if you look at the next chapter, you realize he was setting them up. Because he had them in mind. They were the harvesters who needed to engage. And they hadn't, they hadn't, they hadn't clued in yet to Jesus' plan. And so having God's heart for the lost involves having a passion, a compassion for the lost, but it also involves prayer. It involves prayer. What did he, he, he immediately he encouraged them to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Guess what? You can't pray for the harvest without becoming a harvester yourself. No better way to develop a harvest heart, a heart for the harvest, than to be praying. And I know we've talked about this in the past. We've challenged one another to do this in the past. I think it's time for us to to be re-challenged just for the summer. How about for the next few months? June, July, and August. Three months. June, July, and August. How about we wake up every morning and pray, God, would you give me an opportunity today to be salt? on this earth? Would you give me an opportunity to be a witness for Christ? Would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone today? I know in the past when I've prayed that, when I've been very deliberate and very intentional, waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, would you give me an opportunity? I'll tell you what, man, my radar is up. I'm I'm ready because I prayed and I know the Lord's going to provide. Why wouldn't he answer that prayer? And it makes all the difference in the world because then you show up at Walmart and you're not just thinking, okay, I got to get this and I got to get this and I got to and my list and how come this buggy, the wheel's going like this and, and you're thinking about all this stuff when you're in Walmart because you're just, you're, you're, you're just self-absorbed, self-focused and said, so, you know what? I prayed this morning that I'm going to get a chance to share the gospel with someone and it might be at Walmart. So you're just like looking around going, okay, this wheel is really stupid. I hate it right now, but I'm looking, you know, I'm looking for... You get my point, is you're, you're, you're thinking, you're, you're, right, you're in right mindset. And the point is where, where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeded. Amen? He's our example. He's our example. And so let's, let's resolve, let's resolve together as we start this summer super study to, to be an influence for the cause of Christ Wherever we are, on whomever we're with this summer, 
And I want to encourage you to maybe use Wednesday night as a, as a launching point. Maybe you're out and you're having an opportunity. You prayed and the Lord gave you a chance to touch someone's life, to influence someone's life, to share the gospel and, and invite them to come to Wednesday night. I mean, what better, what, what better place to, to invite an unbeliever, right, to, to come? Here, let's come on Wednesday night. We got this thing in our church. It's free pizza, and, and we sing, and we, we, we get into God's Word, and we're, we have something in the gym afterwards, and it'd just be fun to have them be here. Let's see if we can fill this place up with the people that God is using us to influence with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this time that we've been in your Word tonight, and Lord, it's a convicting um, passage, Lord, when we think about um, how salty we are and whether or not we're truly uh, being the, having the, making the impact and having the influence that you intended us to have here on this earth. And Lord, I know I've got a long way to go in that area and to grow. And so I pray you'd help me to lead by example. And I pray that we just take this message to heart and uh, Lord, that we would wake up every morning, uh, praying and ready to engage people with the good news of the gospel. And we wouldn't do it out of guilt, Father, but we would do it out of great joy, thinking about how merciful and compassionate you've been to us to save us, that we would just want to share the good news with others so that they could experience what we've experienced, Lord. May may you help us uh, as a church deal with some of the tribal tendencies that we have, uh, how we can be critical and judgmental and... and, uh, Lord, that, that uh, we sit here and point our fingers at all the ungodliness in the world. Anybody can do that. But Lord, help us to learn how to engage this Caitlyn Jenner generation, Lord, that we live in. And um, that, Lord, we would season, Lord, this um, society and, and, and this community with the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.